Amen. You can have a seat. Open your Bible to John chapter 2. So good to see you all here. Isn't it wonderful to be together? That It's just good to be able to go to God's Word. And uh, I, I, was, I was getting ready to preach this message, and I got to just tell you, I, was, I had a moment that I had to ask for my daughter's forgiveness. I won't tell you which daughter that I'm referring to, she might be in ninth grade and blindheaded, but I won't tell you who she is. But I had to ask for her forgiveness because when she was doing her homework, I looked up and she has a lot of homework to do every night over at Campbell. They just really level her with a lot of it. And she was doing her homework with earbuds in her ear, getting her work done with her computer, but she was dancing while she was doing it. And I said, darling, and she couldn't hear me. I said, darling, and she finally... I said, what are you? she said, I'm doing my work. I said, yeah, but there's no way you can do your work dancing like that. That's just not Baptist. You've got to stop it. And, 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 she, uh, and she looked at me and said, I'm getting done. I'm like, well, all right. Then, then I read the book of Job and realized I've got to ask for forgiveness for my daughter. Because when you read the book of Job, which, by the way, the book of Job is an interesting book. It is the second that we'll be reading in our Bible reading plan. And you wonder why that's true, because it's later in your Old Testament. But while the book of Genesis speaks of the creation of the world in the opening chapter, Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. And it was even written before Moses wrote Genesis. And when you read the book of Job, you encounter Job's trial and his dealing with human suffering and the problem of evil, as well as any other book it deals with it. But when you read the book, what you'll discover when you get to chapter 38 is an interesting truth about creation that if you're not careful, you might miss. If you remember in John's gospel, we learned that in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word. He's the agent of creation. Everything has been created by Him, and there's nothing that has been, crea- nothing that has been created that He's not made. He's made it all. And then in Job 38, what you learn is this in verse 2. This is great. That while Jesus was doing his creative work, while he was laying the foundations of the world, and while he was was, um, making the world according to God the Father's measurements of what the world ought to be, and laying there at its foundation, its cornerstone. You know what it said is happening in Job chapter 38? I love this text. Job records that while Jesus is creating the angels shout for joy, and the stars burst out in song. So the entire time that God is creating the world and the stars are taking a front seat picture to all the glory that he's making, they are bursting out in song during his creation. So Jesus' work as the agent of creation is joy-filled, music-filled work. But then when you come to the book of John, where we'll be this morning, John tells a different story about creation. Because the world that Jesus created is now in active rebellion against him. And when you come to John chapter 3, verse 16, that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that verse does not speak to the value of the world as much as it speaks to the infinite value of God's love for us and how amazing it is. Because God loves the world, not because the world is so beautiful, 
But as we read in John's gospel, it's because the world is so sinful. And even in spite of its sin, God's love has such a depth that it still loves the world anyway. That, it gives, that God the Father gives us his Son. So that's the way that we read about the world in John's gospel. And so it's much different. When the Father declares creation good in Genesis chapter 1, creation is not good any longer. And in John chapter 2, what we will see is that with great clarity, Jesus begins to recreate the world into something that is altogether new. And in the latter half of John 1, if you'll remember what we talked about last week, John designates the passing of time and all the events of the latter half of the chapter as Jesus receives the mantle from John the Baptist and he's declaring out his ministry. In John chapter 2, you'll see this expression used over, John chapter 1, expression over and over again toward the end is, and the next day. And so day one is when John the Baptist is challenged by that counsel that comes to him from the Jews. On day two, John proclaims that Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On day three, John the Baptist hands off two of his disciples, the two that I believe had a greater understanding of his mission of all of John the Baptist's disciples, and he willfully gives those disciples over to Jesus, and they begin to follow him. The following day, which is day four, Andrew, one of those disciples given to Jesus by John, brings his brother Simon to Jesus, and then on day five, Philip and Nathaniel begin to follow Jesus. And that takes us through to John chapter 2, where Jesus and Jesus' mother Mary, and where Jesus' early disciples, those followers, are with Jesus on the wonderful, joy-filled occasion of a wedding feast in Galilee in a place called Cana. And there are first five days mentioned at the end of John, and then you add that to the three days that follow at the beginning of John chapter 2. So collectively, what we're talking about in this part of Jesus' ministry are the first eight days that are recorded in this gospel. And when we think about these eight days, that number eight has much relevance to us understanding what Jesus is going to do and how we need to understand it in chapter 2. Here's the important truth. While in the beginning there were seven days that made up that initial creation that Jesus completed, on this eighth day, as I believe, there is a new song being hung, sung, and declared from the heavens according to Revelation 14.3. The eternal Son, Jesus, is now doing the work of the new creation, the recreation of the world. That a world that was initially good had been tainted and had been marred with sin, and now Jesus in chapter 2 is transforming that world into a, part, into a, a creation that will be filled with the unrivaled glory of God when he finishes his work. So read with me in John chapter 2 as that recreation begins, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And that word master, master of the feast, could also be the head waiter that is taking care of the details of the wedding feast. So they took it. Verse 9, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John chapter 2 is a great chapter. As we walk through this chapter, I hope that you'll see that there are three notable things that I believe we're going to unpack in this chapter that God wants us to know that these three things will never come to an end. We're going to look at these three things, but as we do, here's the central teaching what I want you to walk away with as we study John chapter 2 together this morning, because we need to be reminded not to just look down and watch our feet like a trail runner keeping from tripping over the rocks and the roots. We live in a day that there's a lot of roots and things that we can get tripped up on, and our gaze is down. We're just trying to make it through this pandemic. We're trying to make it through tomorrow. But as we read John chapter 2, the challenge is that we will do, as Paul says in Colossians, and set our mind on things above and not on earthly things. Get our head up. Look out into eternity, what God has for us to understand. And as we do, what we're going to see in John chapter 2 is that when you set your eyes on things above, surprising insights will emerge. There's things you'll see that otherwise, if you just kept your head down, you would not see. So let's pour into this text and understand that which 
God wants us to now see. And everything that begins in chapter 2 of John's gospel starts around the occasion of a wedding feast. This is where the first miracle of Jesus' ministry was done. And it's very fitting, isn't it? It's right that it starts at a wedding feast. From the first ceremony that was held in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve wed. When God instituted marriage between a husband and a man. Weddings have always, always been a reason to celebrate when they're done under the provision and the guidance and the understanding of what God wants a marriage to be. So it is with our text this morning that just as sinners are drawn to a Savior, we find that Jesus is always drawn into occasions of joy. And you can't even get through the third verse, though, before you see that that joy has been threatened. Because the wine, it says in verse 3, has run out. There is a significant shortage of the beverage that's needed. The beverage which all throughout from the Old Testament to the New, when you read of wine so many times it is representative or it's symbolic of joy. But the wine has run out and the shortage is a big deal. Studying the culture of the day would reveal to you that the party, the family of the, groom, of the bride could even take the groom's family to court and win a lawsuit because of the embarrassment that was brought about through the wine being in such short supply, not given enough provision. So that's what we run into in this text. Embarrassment seems to be unavoidable. And then in steps, mama. Because in verse 3, Mary, who we just assume has an insider role, has some sort of connection to the organization of this wedding. She's probably a part of the family. Jesus is probably a family gathering. Mary knows the insider information that the wine has run out. And so she feels the embarrassment of the family. She knows that that embarrassment is coming. And unless one of supernatural origin and power intervenes in the situation, she knows this is not going to end well. But it just so happens that her son was the one that Gabriel said would be the one who would be the king of all kings. It just so happened that her son was the one that was the product of what happened when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and fulfilled the promise of Isaiah chapter 7 that one day a Messiah would come who was a virgin. It just so happened that Jesus was there. So when she gives the report to Jesus and says they have no one, she's given that report to Jesus. And don't think that that's all she's trying to say. And I don't want you to miss the irony of this exchange. Her son, who also happens to be the one who knows the number of hairs on, her mother, on his mother's, Mary's head, he knows the status of the wine supply. But he also knows what is in Mary's heart and what has driven her statement. Because when we read verse 3, and you read of Jesus' response to his mother, it becomes abundantly clear that when Mary says there is no wine, 
She is not informing. She is directing. Do we have any moms that have ever been there? And sons and daughters, we know. When what's happening is not informing. It is directing. And you know when you're in that situation. And that's what we have right here in this text. She says there is no wine, but you know what she's actually saying? Jesus, it is time for you to do something. And when you read of Jesus' answer in the following verse, at first blush it looks as if Jesus' answer is curt. But if you investigate it further, you know that's not the case. The same way that Jesus addresses his precious mother that he loved, when he hung on the cross bearing the sin of the world and looked at his beloved disciple and he instructs that disciple to take care of the woman and he calls her woman, he calls her woman here again. In Jesus' day, this is a term of endearment and respect. But even while using that endearment and respect, he does need to correct her. He does need to let her see that Ephesians 4 needs to apply here. He needs to speak the truth in love to her because No longer is it true that he is under her care. Now it is true that the reason why he exists, every ounce of his being, is not to satisfy the directing of his mother, but it's to be in complete accord with the obedient will of his heavenly Father. So that is where he takes her. That is what he explains to her in this verse. Woman, what does this have to do for me? My hour has not yet come. And thankfully she gets the message. Because what Mary does next is she turns to her servant. When I read the text, I don't think it took her long. She didn't put up a struggle or a fight or it take time for her to recover from Jesus' rebuke. She understood what he was saying. She received it gladly. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, when you read this text, I got to tell you, I want you to think about Mary's response and not forget what is spoken of in the Psalms. In Psalm 34, verse 8, when the, with joy the psalm calls all of its readers to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because as you read of Mary's quick response, do whatever he wants. I hope that as you anticipate what is coming, your heart begins to beat a little faster. I hope that there's a pleasant throbbing in your soul of anticipation at what Jesus is going to do and the way he is going to act. Because what we're going to see next is you're going to get to catch a glimpse of eternity. Mary's words to the servants They signal a change. The change has happened in her heart. She's able to say those things authentically because she's already determined, whatever he wants of me, I will offer and give to him. And all of you servants, whatever he says to you, the way that I have given God a blank check and said, have your way with me, Lord, I want you to understand as servants to do the same. Whatever he tells you to do, you need to do it. These are the words that tell us that God is about to provide an intervention. The embarrassment that seemed unavoidable, it will be avoided. 
Jesus is going to work. The words of Mary, they're so similar to what we read about in Daniel chapter 3. Those three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in exile, standing before the country, standing before the king, refusing to follow the king's edict and bow a knee to that statue. And when those boys say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but if not, be it known to you, we will not serve your gods or worship your golden image. This comes from the same place as Mary. Whatever you want from me, God, you can have it. And servants, whatever he says, do it. Whatever the consequence, do it. So John tells us that nearby, conveniently, were these six jars of, that held water, jar, jars of stone, each one 20 to 30 gallon collectively. They can hold 120 to 180 gallons, normally used for water, but will soon be the vessels that will be used to hold the beverage that is necessary for the wedding to be filled with joy. The full capacity, of course, is somewhere between this 120 to 180 gallons, but this text is kind of like what we read about when Matthew is at, or when, 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 when Jesus is asked by Peter, do I forgive seven times or seven? And Jesus, 70 times, and Jesus says 70 times seven. There is a number there, but it ultimately means you never stop forgiving. The same thing is true here. It's as if a bottomless supply of the beverage that's needed for the wedding feast to continue will be provided. That's the significance of this text. And the purpose of these jars that will contain what Jesus is about to miraculously transform. Up until that point, they've been used according to our passage from for the Jewish rites of purification. All of this represents the old order of Jewish law and custom that always was meant to whisper of something greater that was coming, something that would replace it, something that the author of Hebrews makes abundantly clear that this is something better that's coming. And Jesus tells his servants to look at those jars and to fill them with water. And they fill it, according to the text, all the way to the top, to the brim. And then Jesus says, draw some out and take it to the headmaster, the head waiter. And that waiter then, that, that water then is turned to wine. And the Bible even gives us this detail of the wine that they drank as they evaluated its taste, it was much better than anything that was even served at the beginning. You don't serve the best wine last first, you serve it, you, you serve, you don't serve it last, you serve it first, but not here. That which Jesus transforms into wine is even better than anything they had consumed previously. And this is a miracle. I was reading about this miracle in Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love to read his work, he defined a miracle as something that follows the course of the laws that God has set in motion, but sometimes the miracle is when God speeds up the process. But I would take issue with him 
this is way more than speeding up the process. You speed up the process of nothing but water, and what do you get? Water. There's no inclusion of grapes. What happens here is transformation. What happens here is something that was water is now turned into something that is completely and utterly different. And this is a miracle. And it's not just a miracle given to us to amaze the masses or to do what D.A. Carson describes. as This isn't just a naked display of God's power. The one who created the laws of nature has transcended those laws. He's acted in a way that's not bound by those laws. And John doesn't describe this action as a miracle. Do you see what he calls it at the end of this part, portion of the text? He calls it a sign. And in a sign, as we understand signs all the way through the Gospel of John, we'll understand that a sign is a display of power that points us beyond ourselves to a deeper reality that can only be understood by faith. So when you understand this sign, says John, you behold, you catch a glimpse of God's very glory. So now we see the purpose in the miracle. And hopefully as we see God use this miracle and even if you're hurting today and you're hoping for a miracle in your own life, wondering why won't God do that in my situation and step outside of those things and transcend it, I hope that you'll understand just in the fact that in God and His sovereign plan, though it might be a mystery, there's times that He chooses not to perform a miracle while other times that He does. It doesn't mean that we should resent Him. But what we see in this miracle is actually a parable. That when you taste of this wine, the wine produced from Christ, you taste of his glory. And that there is no other place that you can taste of his glory except for that which you find in Christ. That life with Christ is where you find this glory. So life in Christ is the only place that you find joy in anything outside of life in Christ. Though it might be dressed up and it might look pretty, there's no joy in it. So the taste of this wine is the taste of joy. The first thing that God has determined that should never end as we read John chapter 2 is that those who believe in Him should have never-ending joy. This is a supply that will never run out. Well, everything else in your life will. But after staying in Capernaum, with those that he loved, verse 13 tells us that Passover is at hand, and Jesus now has to go, goes to Jerusalem. And the Gospels record, it's not that he has to, he wants to. The natural observance of Passover is at hand. You'll find this three times in the Gospel of John. That's why we say Jesus' public ministry is about three years long. This is the first of the three times that he observes Passover. When he goes into this temple, though, this is memorable. I'll go ahead and tell you, my view is that when we read of Jesus cleansing, cleansing the temple, this is the first of two cleansings. The synoptics record it. It happened the week of Holy Week. We're going to see it right here at the beginning of his ministry. Those things don't reconcile unless he's done it twice, which, by the way, what a picture of redemption and God's love for you that Jesus is always in the process of returning and cleansing 
shouldn't surprise us that he does it more than once. So here's Jesus. He's on his way to the temple. But what he finds is something that just breaks his heart. In fact, it brings him to a place of outright anger. The temple is selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and money changers are there. All this is done out of convenience. You shouldn't have to take your sacrifice of your animal all the way to the temple and travel there if you were there to observe Passover. Let's make this convenient. You just show up at the temple gate, and right there, for a small charge of significant proportion, you can go ahead and buy your sacrificial animal and take it into the temple and be acceptable and give an acceptable sacrifice. And while you're there, you can also pay the temple tax. You don't have to go ahead and exchange your currency in advance. Just bring whatever you happen to got. Just take it with you. You'll get there. There's money changers. They'll also charge you a fee, but man, the convenience is great. Walk right into the temple, and then you can worship. Then you go in. You're supposed to be meditating on the goodness and the fullness of the glory of God, and all you can hear is the bleeding of the sheep. All you can hear is the mooing of the cows. All you can hear is the fighting and the bickering. If someone's disagreeing with a money changer on taking too much of a charge on what he did for them, and this isn't worship any longer, you can't even do it. For the sake of convenience, they've lost worship altogether. So Jesus is incensed. Righteous indignation fills his heart. What we find here is just another reflection of the fullness of his personhood. We first learned that Jesus brings happiness and joy when he supplies a never-ending supply of wine. But here, Jesus walks into a situation that needs to be rectified and corrected. And the Jesus who comes to save is also a king who comes to reign. And we see a reflection of his reign. He comes in in his righteousness and he takes care of what needs to be corrected. So there's tables there. He crashes them. There's money changers. You can picture it. He's, they're down on the ground trying to gather up their coins in desperation before someone else can grab at them. And Jesus does all of this for a reason. He says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? So now we see that while Jesus is gentle and lowly, as we're reading about. Filled with unmatchable compassion, he's also filled, as it says in John 2, with consuming zeal. A quotation from Psalm 69, verse 9. So what is it that incites such righteous anger and resolve in Jesus? Well, what this text teaches us about God's response is that God takes very serious the way we treat worship. And when there is an absence in our worship of focus, just here gathered to behold the glory of God when that's not there, it's not just that Jesus is bothered by it. It's that he responds with indignation. So Jesus rids the temple of anything that would cheapen or corrupt the worship that occurs within it. And in doing so, John reveals something else that will never end. The second thing in this text is that worship will never end. 
And then the Jews, they hijack John's language in verse 18. They ask for a sign. John said, Jesus has already given a sign. That's what he calls the miracle earlier. But now they're asking for a sign. And they want Jesus to perform for him. Like they can domesticate him. Ask him to do a sign and a miracle to satisfy their own whims. And isn't it interesting what happens whenever you try to domesticate the Lord? You ask him to perform on demand. Mary, Jesus' mother, when she was directing instead of informing, she thought she could gain his ear. She learned that she couldn't. Thankfully, she repented of that in fast order. You would hope that these would learn the same. I don't think they do. But truthfully, as we read of this, there's not much difference. And asking Jesus for a sign for their own pleasure is what we see in false teachers of today that try to convince you that God lives for your pleasure, for your purposes. That he's basically just a genie that you can rub and have satisfy your longings for you to have the best life now. That's the message that they give. And Jesus has a response. Destroy the temple and in three days I'll rise it up again. But they're too scared to call his bluff. The last thing they'd ever want to do is destroy that temple. They're designed for a sign does not exceed their desire to maintain their comfort and their power and their lifeless, spiritless existence. They're living in a way that they're just consuming air, not living the way that God created them to be. They're on their way to certain separation and death away from God, but it matters too much to them to give up their way of life to listen to what Christ has for them. So they argue it took 46 years to build that temple. Have you ever heard that argument? If I follow Jesus and truly repent, that means i got to give all this up. Everything I built my life on, all the things that I thought were true, it means I have to acknowledge we're not. And you wonder why repentance is so hard. They asked for a son. What they could not see is that he had already offered to give it to them. But he's not talking about brick and mortar to be torn down, to be rebuilt, is he? He's talking about something utterly different. So the third thing that he's talking about is he points them to his life and his own body being the temple that will be resurrected in three days. The third thing that never ends, according to John chapter 2, is life. So what are our takeaways? What a fascinating text. But what do we need to walk away with? Well, let me just ask you in close to think about these things this week. When you think about this incredible story of Jesus turning water into wine, and you're wrestling with that, and you're remembering the joy can only be found in him, I want you to remember this takeaway if you want to experience that joy, you need to obey Christ in the mundane places of life. If you're wondering, where does all this start for me? It's when Mary instructs the servants, do whatever he asks, and he tells them what? Fill the jars. 
You and I just need to fill the jars. Whatever God calls us to do, just fill the jars. Read your Bible every day. Spend time in prayer. Spend time getting to know the Lord. Whatever he's tasked you or called you to do, obey him. If it means cross the street and care for your neighbor, you do that. And as you do those things day after day, you will experience the joy that never ends. So obedience comes in the mundane places of life, not the fireworks and the displays of grandeur. It's not even in the bride and the bridegroom that this whole thing is about. It's in the servants doing what Jesus called them to do. And as you and I are servants of his, let's follow him and fill the jars every day. Every day we just do those things. There's something else. And Jesus gets so angry. Doesn't it awaken you to another part of who Christ is? He's filled with joy and meekness, but he's also filled with righteous indignation when something is an affront to his holiness, goes against what God wills for us. And if we're going to love like he loves, we need to love God enough to be angry. Sometimes we need to be angry at injustices and things that are wrong in the world around us. And it should motivate us to act in a way that is not filled with sin, but in a way that's motivated by what God wants for us. And when you look at that, you're just like, well, what do you mean, Jeff? Well, please understand this. In this text, I think too often, we're the compliant ones that are scattering on the ground. Where do we fall in this? We're the money changers trying to gather up our coins. We're the ones whose tables have been overturned. We have compromised and settled into our culture and allowed things to continue. And we need to be a people who love the Lord enough to spend time with him. This really is what discipleship is all about. When you spend time with Jesus, you spend time with him to learn from him to become like him. So the things that he loves, you love. The things that he hates, you hate. And the action that he takes, you, you take those actions too. So we follow him in obedience. And the last thing I think we need to walk away from is you see the encounter of Jesus with these asking for a sign. Is we just got to build our life on the power of resurrection. The one who is raised from the dead on the third day, he's worth following. And even if it means we have to tear down years of an edifice of our life that has been opposed to his plan, let it go, repent of those things, and follow after Jesus and believe in the power of the resurrection because that's what leads to eternal life. And then chapter 2 comes to an end. While Jesus is at the Passover feast, many believe in the signs they saw he was doing, but Jesus knows what's in their hearts, it says at the end of chapter 2, so he doesn't entrust himself to them. Because it says he knows at the end of verse 25 what is in man. Isn't it fascinating to know that Jesus knows? And as you read this text, I just want to ask you the question. Does it terrify you that he knows? Are you glad that he knows? Because when I read this text and I think about the waywardness of my sin and what an affront it is to a holy God, even with this knowledge of what is in my heart that is a idol maker every day, God still knows what's in that heart and he's transforming me into what he wants me to be. 
he knows. So since he knows, I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and consider these truths. And There's no reason to hide or turn away from them. Do you believe in a God who transforms? Are you tasting in the joy that only is found in Christ, or are you trying to find it in some other place? You want to know why there is so much sin and heartbreak and infidelity and giving yourself away to things that are not what they ought to be? It's because we've just not understood that the wine has run out, and if we can just turn to Christ, we'll understand that joy is only found in Him. Is that where you're looking for joy? When you think about everything this text has, I just want to invite you into the joy of knowing Christ, becoming more and more like Him each day, loving the things that He loves, being frustrated and angered over the things that He righteously is angered about. Let's just live our lives so that every day we're becoming more and more like Him. That can start for you today if you'll transfer your hope and your trust and put it in Jesus for all of you. Just look at this text. These are things that Jesus has declared will never end. Father, I thank you so much for these truths. I just pray that, Lord, they will change us as we see you stepping into your creation, transforming it, and recreating it. But Father, just as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you've begun a new work in us. The old is gone and the new has come. Father, if there's anyone here who needs to be recreated by the power of the gospel, the power of resurrection, I pray that it will begin today and that all of us will bow before this wonderful, majestic, amazing Lord. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.